And we're going to continue in 1 Samuel, picking up where Teresa left off. It's 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 15. Uh, I know it's a little dark in here. Um, we're going to really try to manipulate your emotions during the key change of the song after the sermon with the smoke machines. No, I'm just kidding. It's, um, something's wrong with the computer. Um, but it's dark in here, but please try to keep your Bible open. This is a weird, complicated story, and we'll be going through it fairly quickly. And so please keep your Bibles open as we go through it. 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that's on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that's desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called up to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage." When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you 
and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? He said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us in these various ways in your word, not just through letters with clear logical arguments, not just through poems uh, that evoke emotions in us and desires in us, but also through strange and complicated stories uh, about a world that we don't quite live in anymore. Please speak to us through this story. Help us to see your goodness in it, your power in it. Most of all, help us to see your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, you remember from last week uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, that we heard about Israel sinfully demanding to have a king like the nations all around them. Uh, we saw Samuel warning them about the injustice and the oppression that we're gonna, this was going to bring them in spite of what they were expecting, uh, and yet they insisted anyways. Uh, and so we saw at the end of 1 Samuel 8, just before our story today, God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Go ahead, arrange for them to have their king. Uh, this sets up, or really more returns to, one of the big questions, one of the big tensions in the entire Bible. How can God be king and at the same time humans be, quote-unquote, king? Uh, Adam and Eve were meant to be uh, a little king and a little queen ruling underneath God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, they were supposed to go out and rule over God's creation on his behalf. Uh, and then we see this now with Israel uh, wanting to have a human king. Uh, in between Adam and Eve and this story last week we read, uh, Israel didn't have a king. They didn't need one. God said, I'm your king. Uh, and so now uh, we return to this tension. How can God be king and at the same time there be human kings? Uh, this passage is all about whether or not and to what extent and in what way God is still king, even though the people have rejected him. And they've clearly said, we don't want you as king. We might expect, having just heard God tell Samuel, make arrangements for the king, and then Samuel, maybe frustrated, says, meeting's over, everyone go home. Uh, we might expect now in chapter 9 to hear about Samuel making these preparations. But instead we get some generic language about some family with a particularly good-looking son. If you look back at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we have this little introduction about Saul. It's using the same language we had at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, where we hear that there was a certain man, and then we hear about four generations of his ancestors, none of whom are really much of anyone that we've ever heard of before or see anywhere else in the Bible. Same thing happens here with this guy Saul. We hear about his status. We hear that his father is a man of wealth, but we mostly hear about his appearance. 
we hear that he is a handsome young man and that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And then to make sure we haven't missed the point, the narrator tells us from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. He was literally head and shoulders above everyone. The point is that Saul is a very impressive young man. He's what you would expect a king to look like. Remember that Israel wanted a king who would do something spectacular for them, who would be victorious, who would bring them all kinds of success. If ancient Israel had run The Bachelor, Saul would have been the first guy on it. This looks like the king. But now the story takes an odd turn. We seem to be getting farther and farther from Israel's demand for a king and God's granting it to them. We now go from a very handsome man to some lost donkeys. Look at verses 3 and 4. The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Uh, This is maybe hard for us to understand today, but it would have been a big deal back then. Donkeys were expensive. They were very useful and important. Uh, They were even a status symbol. Kings in Israel rode on donkeys. Uh, It would be comparable today uh, to waking up and finding that your car is gone or your computer is gone or that your phone is gone. Saul says the donkeys, his dad says the donkeys are gone. Go find them. This is a big deal. They search all over the place for three days, all through the surrounding countryside. Not finding them, though, we hear in verse 5 about a nameless servant taking the lead. He coaxes Saul into seeking God's prophet. In verse 5, Saul opens his mouth for the first time. Oddly, even though he looks like a king, he does not sound like a king. He says, let's give up. He says, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now, on the one hand, it seems like Saul cares about his dad. He doesn't want him to worry. That's good. But on the other hand, Saul is giving up on the mission that his father gave to him. Uh, I've been thinking about this this week. I think if he's not the most complex character in the Bible, he's certainly one of them. Saul is very hard to figure out, especially at the beginning of his life. You've got to really hang on to this, especially as we go through his story. He already seems to be a bit passive here, but it's possible that he's doing the right thing. Not clear. Let's keep going. Look at verse 6. We hear Saul's nameless servant taking the lead. The servant proposes that they find some man of God. We don't know what his name is, or we are not told what his name is whose access to God means that he speaks truthfully and, according to the servant, can tell us the way we should go. Now, again, on one level, of course, the way we should go could just be tell us where to find the donkeys, uh, point on the map where we need to go. But on a deeper level, now that God and his word have been introduced into this story, the way that we should go may and will have a much deeper significance. In God's economy, Israel's story is going to be tied up more and more with Saul's story. But in verse 7, Saul makes an excuse about why they shouldn't go see him. He says, ah, what are we going to pay him with? We don't have any bread. I don't know what to do. Uh, And again, maybe on the one hand, Saul is just being considerate. He doesn't want to be stingy. But on the other hand, it's not really clear. Maybe he just doesn't really care. Maybe he's not interested in the things of God or the word of God. So far, the servant whose name we don't know, seems far more interested in God 
and what God has to say. And then in verse 8, pretty oddly, the servant just happens to have some silver to pay this man of God with. He says, I'll, tell, I'll pay him, I'll give it to him to tell us our way. And so Saul has run out of excuses. He says, okay, let's go. But then in verse 11, we move from a nameless servant pointing Saul to God now to nameless girls pointing Saul to God. In verse 11, we see them meeting young women going to a well. If you are at all familiar with the story of the Bible, this should be raising alarm bells in your mind. Because in the Bible, significant steps forward in God's dealings with humanity happen with women at wells. Jacob and Isaac and Moses all met their wives at a well. Jesus has a massively important conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well where we learn and he makes it clear that he has not come only for the Jewish people, but for all peoples. Something's going on here. This is not just any old donkey search. They ask the girls about this seer, and we're told that what this means is they're looking for a prophet. And then we hear in verse 12 about how excited these young women are about connecting Saul with him. Uh, They are very excited about God's word, about God's worship. Uh, They are not particularly interested in Israel's most eligible bachelor. Uh, Look at their urgency there in verse 12. They say, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now. As soon as you enter the city, you're going to find him. Now go up and you'll meet him immediately. You hear in verse 14 what you've probably already been suspecting, that this man of God and prophet is none other than Samuel himself. And so it just so happens that Saul and his servant arrive at just the right moment in order to consult God through his chosen prophet at the time. But then in verse 15, we get a bit of an aside from the narrator. The narrator pauses to explain to us something that happened the day before so that we can understand the theological significance of what's going on right now. This is not an ordinary search for donkeys. Look at verse 15. Notice how God says, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. It means that all of these mundane and apparently disconnected details have actually come about through God's very specific plan. The lost donkeys, the wandering journey, the servant's proposal and money in his pocket, the girls at the well, the timing of Samuel's sacrifice, all these things, God's behind all of it. The point here is that God is still king over Israel. God is still king over the world, even if Israel has rejected him. And they've said, we don't want to be ruled by you anymore. The point, too, is that God rules over even the tiniest details of our lives. God ties them together for his own good purposes, as we hear about in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We should be encouraged by this, no matter how mundane or unremarkable or unimpressive our days and our callings and our lives might be. God is ruling over all of it. God is ruling over the donkeys in your life too. It means that God is working around and through you kids, uh, even through the daily grind of chores and navigating friendships and schoolwork. 
It means that God is at work behind and around every one of your emails, every one of your spreadsheets, every diaper, every temper tantrum, every commute, every meal, every interaction that you have with your family and your neighbors. God is king behind all of it. So part of the point of this story, as strange as it is, is that God is still king, even if Israel doesn't want him to be their king. But this little aside also shows us what God's doing as king, what his bigger purpose is. You see that at some level, he has chosen Saul to be his king. Uh, Anointing means smearing oil on somebody's head. It's a picture in the Bible of God choosing somebody for a special work, for a special task. Uh, Kings get anointed in the Old Testament, but so do prophets and especially priests. Uh, This word that we use to describe Jesus, the Messiah or Christ, Christ is not his last name, Uh, It's a title. It means anointed one. So at some level, Saul is a picture of the ultimate anointed one to come, Jesus. If not in his character, at least in his role. But you note also in verse 16 that God doesn't quite call him a king. You see that? God uses this non-political term, leader. Prince isn't really quite a good term because that's a political term. This is a a non-political term. It just means leader. Again, the point is that God is the real king and that even Israel's human kings, like Adam and Eve were supposed to be, could never forget that they were ruling under God's rule. They answer to him. God is the real king. Even someone like Saul, who's going to become king in a sense, is at the end of the day just a deputy. Note too that Saul is going to be anointed as a prince, as a leader for a specific mission. God says he's going to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. His calling was to save. His calling was to rescue God's people from their enemies. In this case, it meant the literal military enemies, the Philistines. But notice, too, why God is doing this. He says, I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, coming on the heels of chapter 8, this is a really amazing thing. This is a profound picture of God's compassion and love for a people who don't deserve it, let alone want it. Over and over here, God keeps calling them, my people. In the first verse of chapter 10, he will call them his heritage. Uh, That's a word that describes a family inheritance that you cannot ever get rid of. You cannot ever transfer. You cannot ever sell it. It is inalienable inheritance. That's how God considers his people. They're my heritage. They're my inheritance. I will never leave them. The people have just flagrantly and knowingly rejected God as their king. They've opted for a human king instead. And so part of Saul's calling was to restrain them, we hear about here. Uh, In one sense, he is God's judgment upon Israel. He's God's discipline for them. And yet at the same time, we see that God's not giving up on them. In his abundant mercy, he still sends salvation to them, even though they don't deserve it or want it. That's why I brought Romans 5.8 into our service earlier. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so you can see here that in this theological interlude, helping us to see what's really going on with the donkey chase, it's not just that God is still king, it's also that God is a merciful king 
And that should be a great encouragement to you today as you are discouraged and frustrated by your sin, by your failures, by your weakness, overwhelmed by all of it. God sends salvation in Jesus in spite of everything you've done, in spite of everything you will do. You just have to accept it. The story continues in verse 18. We're back at the hill where Samuel, who as the prophet is the embodiment of God's word, uh, where we find Samuel leading the people of God in the worship of God. Saul says to Samuel, hey, where's this seer? And he was probably pretty surprised when Samuel says, I am the seer. (laughs) Samuel has the inside scoop. He knows what God is up to. Now we as the listeners know what God is up to, but Saul, poor guy, still doesn't know what the heck is happening. He's very confused. But what you do see here is the primacy of God's word over the human king. Samuel peppers Saul with all kinds of commands. It's probably pretty disorienting. He says, stop worrying about these donkeys. Uh, Don't think about that anymore. Uh, There's something much more significant that God has for you. Uh, We're going to talk about God's plan for you as his anointed ruler. In verse 21, Saul is understandably confused by what Samuel is saying. He doesn't know what's going on, but he seems to understand that Samuel is making some pretty lofty statements about him and his family. And so he says, what are you talking about? I'm a nobody. Again, as with much of Saul, at this stage of the story, it's not entirely clear what kind of confusion we're dealing with. Is Saul saying this because he's genuinely humble? Or is he saying it because he's cynical and skeptical and can't be bothered to respond to God's word? But in verses 22 and following, we continue to see over and over that in Samuel, God's word rules over God's prince. Samuel Brings him to a meal. He says, sit here, eat that. Uh, This was set aside for you for this exact moment. Uh, We read that Samuel integrates Saul into fellowship with the people. He says, you're going to eat with these people. You're going to dine with them. Uh, Just at this right appointed time. In verse 25, Samuel gives him a bed. He says, sleep there. In the morning, he gives him an early wake-up call. He says, get up. I'm going to tell you more things. Uh, I want to talk to you. Tell your servant to go ahead of us uh, and then stop here. I want to talk to you some more about God's word. You get the point? God's word rules over the king. In chapter 10, now Samuel anoints Saul in private. Uh, Later, next week, we'll see Saul recognized publicly as God's king. But right now, we have a private anointing. He pours oil on his head. He smears it around on him. And then he kisses him as a sign that he's chosen by God. He reminds him that God has called him to be a leader. Again, he doesn't use the word king. He's to be a leader over God's inheritance for the sake of salvation. But now starting in chapter 10, verse 2, before Saul heads back home, Samuel gives Saul a bunch of signs that are going to happen on his journey home. Signs that will confirm that he really has just heard from God, uh, that Samuel is speaking for him. Because God is the world's true king. He is the only one who can predict and control the future. So Samuel gives him three signs. He says, sign number one, verse 2, you're going to meet two men. They're going to tell you that the donkeys are found and that your father's worried about you now. Sign two, verse three, you're going to meet some men going up to worship and sacrifice to God at this special worship site called Bethel, and they're going to give you some special holy bread. Uh, Somebody kingly getting holy bread is going to show up a couple times later in the story of the Bible, very significantly, particularly for Jesus. Sign number three, verse five, he says, you're going to get back to your home, you're going to get back to the area of Gibeah, and there you are going to find a garrison of the Philistines. 
Now, we should be a little worried about that. We've just heard that Saul is called to defeat the Philistines. Uh, These are the people that God wants to save his people from. But Samuel says, as soon as you roll into town, you're going to see this fort of the Philistines. And as soon as you roll into town, you're going to meet a group of prophets coming down from worship. And he says, God's spirit is going to rush upon you. And you are going to prophesy with them. And you're going to turn into another man. Uh, Now, as a little aside, when we hear about the spirit of God rushing upon Saul, we're not talking about what we theologically call regeneration. We're not talking about becoming a Christian or becoming a believer but rather we are talking about a special equipping, a special gifting to do work for God. Uh, We heard about this already in the Old Testament in the previous book before 1 Samuel. You hear about this a bunch in the book of Judges with this guy named Samson where the Spirit of God rushes upon him a couple different times and he immediately starts killing Philistines in God's power. Uh, In the New Testament, you hear about something like this at Pentecost when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit and they are powerfully equipped to go out and do God's work in the world. Uh, Pentecost is not the disciples getting saved. It's not the disciples becoming Christians or believers. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, you know, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Well, no, yeah, they did. There's no way to be saved. There's no way to know God or hear from God except by His Spirit. Uh, The Bible talks about uh, being filled with the Spirit in a couple different ways. This way here is the being equipped to do God's work kind of way, not the coming to know God and getting saved kind of way. But anyways, get back to the story. Samuel says, uh, when you get there, uh, the Spirit's going to rush upon you. You're going to prophesy with them. You're going to turn into another man. And then he says, echoing some language about military conquest from the book of Judges, Samuel says, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Samuel seems to be saying, you're going to get home, And there you will find some Philistines, wink, wink. And like Samson, wink, wink, you will have God's Spirit rush upon you. And when all this happens, wink, wink, do what God's called you to do. You guys get the point? What is he supposed to be doing? After all these signs, in verse 8, Saul is going to, to, we hear that he has to submit to to Samuel. Uh, He has to submit to God's word. Samuel says, go to Gilgal, wait for me for seven days until I come tell you what to do. This will come back to haunt Saul in a couple of chapters. Verse 9, we hear that he he leaves Samuel, God gives him another heart, and all the signs come to pass that day. As the story of Saul goes on, he's going to slide deeper and deeper into madness and paranoia and sin, but we are already getting hints that something is off with him that this is not a godly man. Even so, just like God works through sinful pastors and self-professed Christians who later show by their words or their actions that they really are not Christians, in the same way, we see God working through Saul in mighty and powerful ways. I think we're getting a bit of a of an illustration of what Hebrews chapter 6 so soberly talks about when it says that there are people who can taste of the age to come, there are people who can experience God's Spirit and yet not actually really be Christians. We're getting an illustration in the life of Saul, I think, of what Jesus means when he talks about how at the end of history there's going to be a lot of people that will come to him and they'll say, Jesus, Jesus, look at we casted all these demons in your name, we did all these miracles in your name, we prophesied in your name. And Jesus says, I'll say, I don't know who you are. 
doesn't say, no, you didn't do those things. That didn't happen. You can have really powerful, amazing, miraculous things happen, but God not actually be behind it. But anyways, here the signs all come to pass, and under the mighty rushing of the Spirit, Saul does prophesy God's word. But uh, the people in his hometown are pretty confused by it all. They say in verse 11, what has come over him? Is he among the prophets? They're saying, we don't understand. What is happening? Can it really be that Saul, of all people, is really now a godly prophet, well acquainted with his ways? This isn't a positive statement about him. This is a negative statement. But you get an even more ominous and clear indication once he gets home in verse 14. But did you notice, before we get to that, did you notice what didn't happen when he got home? Remember, Samuel said all these signs are going to happen, the last of which is this bizarre prophesying thing uh, when you get home, uh, where, don't forget, there's a garrison of the Philistines. And he says, once all that happens, get busy, son. Wink, wink. Do what God has called you to do, which I have already told you is to save God's people from the very Philistines who are now camped at your home. But Saul doesn't do it. He walks right past the garrison. He goes home, and in the shadow of the garrison, he gives his uncle a pretty lame report of what he's been up to. His uncle says, hey, where have you been? Where did you go? Uh, We went to seek the donkeys, and we talked to Samuel. The uncle knows who Samuel is. He says, oh, wow, what did Samuel say to you? And Saul totally whiffs it. He says, "Uh, he told us that the donkeys were all good, not to worry about it. And then the narrator, to make sure we don't miss this, says, about the matter, or literally the word of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, Saul did not tell him anything. Talks about the donkeys. Doesn't talk about what was really important. This anointed leader called to defeat the Philistines by the power of God's rushing spirit does not do anything about them. He will do something about them soon. We'll hear about that in a couple weeks. But already this unlikely prophet, he was so recently speaking God's word under the power of the Holy Spirit, now avoids speaking God's word about his kingdom. Whether he's doing it from disbelief or embarrassment or disinterest. Saul is God's initial answer to Israel's sinful request for a king. God is going to work through him. God already has. But he is not shaping up to be much of a king, even if he is as handsome as all get out. God is revealing his merciful rule through Saul But we see God's merciful rule so much better in Jesus. Like Saul, Jesus also was a nobody from an unremarkable family. Like Saul, Jesus was sent on the Father's mission. Jesus was God's anointed ruler. He was attested to be God's ruler by God's prophet, in his case, John the Baptist. Like Saul, Jesus heard God's word. His calling was confirmed by miraculous signs and he shared table fellowship with God's people. But praise the Lord, today Jesus was also a lot unlike Saul. Jesus did not give up on the Father's mission. He says in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. It was always clear, unlike Saul, very ambiguous, it was always clear in Jesus' life that he was in full, joyful fellowship with the Father. He says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says in John 15, I've kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. Jesus says, I'm living, I'm dwelling in the love of the Father all the time. Unlike Saul, Jesus actually defeated God's enemies towards the end of his life. Jesus says in John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And unlike Saul, Jesus did not hold back the word of the kingdom. He came clearly preaching the good news of God's kingdom rule now come in and through himself, fully God and fully man. Jesus said in John 6, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He spoke everything of God's kingdom that God wanted him to. And yet at the same time, it was because he clearly proclaimed the word of God's kingdom that he was murdered with such a miserable death on the cross. John 10, we hear about the crowds, many of them saying, he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? The main leaders of God's people, Israel, at his trial, screaming in horror, accusing him of blasphemy, executing him for blasphemously claiming to speak for God, even to be God. But even so, if you're a Christian here today, we have come to know and to see that Jesus is God's king of mercy. Jesus is God's king who's come to a sinful and an undeserving people. We know that we are those people. And so we can say with one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, we can say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is God's Holy One. He's God's anointed King. He's full of the Spirit. He's come to bring us salvation in spite of our sin. He's so much better than Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your power, for your rule that you show us in Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own sinful and selfish desires for autonomy from you, but that in spite of our sin, just like you did here in this story, you heard our cries. You saw our oppression, you saw our weakness, you saw our suffering, and you sent Jesus to save us from our greatest enemies. Help us to live in your love that we see in him. Help us to have the joy that comes with knowing your kindness and your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.